I'm wearing my new shirt. Mm, test and production or live a lie. Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software products inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps Podcast. Welcome to the Mac DevOps Podcast, where we talk about Mac things, Mac admins, Mac IT, the clouds, and trying to learn new skills. Um, today, we're joined by my lovely and very deep baritone host of a man, JD. Hi, Matt. <laughs> is that deep enough for you? <laughs> Woo! And our awesome guest, Seth. Welcome. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for joining us. I've been meaning to get you on the podcast for a long time. You've been doing some very exciting things. Yeah, just uh, trying to constantly sort of up my game and figure out how to accomplish more and more. You've been uh, living some interesting times, I think. There was uh, a recent MDM shift, and then you're all over the boards learning Monkey. Yeah, the uh, shift from when Fleetsmith uh, switched over, or I should say was acquired by Apple, was uh, pretty interesting, um, pretty political. Um, a lot of people were pretty upset about how abruptly they changed everything over. Um, but they, um, they were pretty accommodating to users. And despite the disruption from dismantling their app catalog, maybe I should go backwards. <laughs> Fleet, yeah. Give us a history on that. Fleet, <laughs> I can say this is, um, I mean, I have, I have no relationship other than just being a customer of Fleetsmith. Um, but Fleetsmith was an MDM provider that sort of uh, had a huge focus on a third-party app catalog. And they sort of just uh, made it super easy to uh, just keep software up to date. If you had your different machines, your Macs in the fleet, they would sort of handle all of the packaging and make it very easy for a lot of basic packages, basic things like Chrome and Slack, et cetera. And they were acquired by Apple, sort of in secret and all at once. And of course, the thinking was that Apple couldn't really be in the business of distributing out third-party non-Apple apps that weren't sort of through their app store. And so all at once, they just got rid of the whole app catalog, which was maybe the primary selling point of how all these um, sysadmins had been using it. So... They were very accommodating, um, and they sort of offered to just refund people if they wanted to um, get out of whatever their contract was, or they gave a nice discount um, and just said, like, if you stick with us, you know, we're Apple now, uh, there are good things to come. And so with that, without the third-party app catalog, um, I was looking for some solutions to try to keep software up to date among all the different users and everyone just kept saying monkey 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 and so i hopped into that monkey channel on the mac admins slack workspace and sort of just started figuring it out pouring over that documentation and sort of asking tons of questions over there to try to figure out how to maintain in a good and reliable way distributing out a lot of that non-Apple software and keeping it all up to date. So yeah, the monkey, the journey through monkey has been super interesting. And what's nice about it is <laughs> maybe the third party app catalog was super easy way back when, but maybe it was also a crutch uh, because now with the sort of fuller, more deeper understanding of how to go deploy all the DMGs and PKGs through Monkey across different machines, 
it's way more customizable, can do way more software than what Fleetsmith had been providing natively back before the Apple acquisition. I mean, for those of us in the audience watching with our bag of popcorn when we're looking at Seth ask questions in the monkey channel, it's the, I've been thinking it's like the very public education of Seth, Seth G. Um, it's, it's a public forum and we ask questions that we hope answers will help other people. And um, <laughs> you've been there and you've been brave and you've been asking questions and sometimes answers are <clears throat> um, a little rough, but mostly they're super sweet. I mean, they're intended in a sweet way. So uh, you've been there for like many months now, ever since this MDM shift, tectonic shift. And uh, yeah, it's not just deploying software. You've gone into the clouds, right? Yeah. Are you using Terraform or AWS somehow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I should give a shout out. And I think it was even you who pointed me to Graham Gilbert's script. Um, and this is something that was huge and important. And to be honest, I had never even thought about just CDNs and the edge in this way because I had never really needed to. This is something that sort of esoteric for app developers. Um, but uh, yeah, so a lot of times it looked like a lot of those kind of older tutorials around deploying monkey had been geared toward kind of rolling your own uh, web server just inside of uh, like on premises somewhere for an office. And now with the pandemic, that's not really enough uh, because everyone's remote all over the place. Um, but where I was deploying it, I mean, we have people all over the country already. And so using uh, Graham Gilbert's script, his Terraform script to set up all the infrastructure on AWS was um, exactly the thing that I wanted. So he has a script that automates with Terraform. Um, and I'm not even too familiar with all of the other assorted tools that do this. I assume like cloud formation is like this. And um, there's other scripts that just automate different parts of infrastructure in different cloud services. But his is written uh, for Terraform for AWS. And what it does is it sets up a particular S3 bucket. It does uh, Lambda at Edge uh, basic authorization for Monkey. And it also uh, creates a CloudFront distribution for S3 so that you can pop particular software packages into an S3 bucket and then uh, it gets pushed out to the CDN to some place that's pretty local to anyone. Uh, I have it set up for, I think it's just the North America one, which is good for us, but you can pay more and have it get very close to anyone worldwide. I should say you, using a CDN like CloudFront is the thing that makes all downloads feel fast no matter where you are. Yeah, I mean, I think it started with a friend of mine, Wade, making this uh, middleware. Um, he wanted to make it for Amazon uh, a couple of years ago. And then I think Greg suggested, why don't you make the middleware so it works for any cloud? And so then there was a middleware piece. And then I think a few years later, Graham's like, well, I've been using Terraform. I want to use a Terraform script to automate this. And he showed that at uh, Mac DevOps, which was like, you know, monkey in, in 10 minutes or five, 10 minutes. And uh, it's very impressive when you can, I mean, it's, it's literally epitomizing what we've been saying with this DevOps and Mac DevOps is that our infrastructure is software, right? So we can write a few lines of a config file and we're building infrastructure. And I mean, I spent last night fixing some storage on-premise for a client, a video client, <laughs> their storage went down. So on-premise storage isn't died, but the cloud is becoming more and more important to supporting it. And it at some point may replace on-premise storage, certainly for these remote collaborative editorial uh, media entertainment situations. And uh, we'll get to that in a second, but tell us more about how you found the cloud, you found Terraform, you found Monkey. Now, how, 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 how easy was that transition? It's interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that other, those other <laughs> adventures in AWS before, but it was really by accident that I had any familiarity with 
um, working in the cloud there in AWS um, and S3. Uh, so I had already been learning the AWS command line tool for other purposes. We, especially when the pandemic hit, we were looking for a way to replace shipping hard drives around. Um, we didn't even really know. I mean, back then, we didn't really even know how dangerous the virus was or how contagious it was. So we didn't even have people who wanted to ship hard drives. So we were looking for a way to reliably send a lot of data. And this, for media and entertainment workflows, that can be 500 gigs easy, or it can be, you know, two, three, four terabytes of shipping stuff around. And we were running into undocumented limits on Google Drive. Google Drive, especially some of those old G Suite plans, they advertise unlimited storage, sort of. Uh, there's some fine print that there's actually a 750 gigabyte per user per day upload limit. And it turns out there's a totally undocumented download limit. <laughs> <laughs> you can trip and it just says, um, sorry, your limit has been reached for the day, which sort of makes sense um, because we're, you're paying a flat rate. <laughs> so why would you, you know, if, if you have some folks who are putting up huge files endlessly, there's got to be a limit to what Google's actually willing to support. So, um, so we ran, so we were started tripping these undocumented download limits as we were trying to send huge amounts of data, much more than the 750 gigs. And uh, we just had to turn out of necessity to something AWS. We could have done GCP. Um, it was just sort of an accident for no reason in particular, uh, probably really just because AWS has that brand. I mean, I guess you could say they were the first real cloud company, so their brand is strong. And so I just started playing with transferring all that data via S3, and it's simply metered. Um, so the way I think about it is it's like you can upload, uh, uploading is free and then downloading with some other expenses, you can sort of round off and say it's about nine cents a gig to download. But when you're shipping say 500 gigs or a terabyte of data, um, that would have gone on a hard drive and you might've overnighted it for a hundred bucks via UPS or FedEx, then that starts looking equivalent as long as you have fast enough network speeds and we might be doing this like between Washington DC and San Francisco and that's that's when it actually becomes a real viable alternative at those price points yeah you set up a whole system online to go through these these dailies so you've definitely been adventuring in the in AWS cloud and I appreciated you sharing all that information with everybody um, but Maybe back to, to Monkey, how, how was that transition? Like when you moved from MDM with his built-in app catalog to Monkey and then trying to figure all that out and get everybody set up, was there, what was the most painful thing <laughs> or the, <laughs> what was the biggest stumbling block? Yeah, I think um, the, uh, the way that Monkey works takes some getting used to it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around the concept of the manifests and the catalogs and exactly what everything is. The metaphor that sort of came up, and I think this was in the monkey channel in Slack, was the difference between, say, a shopping list versus the items at a grocery store. It's everything sort of looks like a big just list of packages and you're not quite sure what is what and what packages might get deployed to which machines. Um, but once you have that sort of working metaphor, it sort of becomes clear where as, uh, okay, I'm going to get this backwards, uh, but the <laughs> catalogs you can think of as the, um, the, uh, 
items in the store and the manifests are the shopping list. And once you have that, then you know you can um, set some computers to be to grab test packages that might have higher versions, might have, be a little bit buggier, deploy to fewer users, and then uh, you can make your production catalog much wider. So that when you have a package that you've tested and you know is good, then you can push that back out. Um, yeah figuring out how you want your catalogs and manifests to look that's kind of a big deal um and just figuring out uh how to manipulate all those plist files uh in the ways that you want and just kind of mashing through it in a test environment in a silent test environment once you have the building blocks though that's that's when it all kind of comes into focus did you find any tools that helped you with this uh, process of mashing plists? Sounds so attractive. Uh, there are no, uh, there are no particular tools. I mean, I'm kind of old school. Uh, I this might not be the most efficient way, but really just popping open the plists themselves in Vim and just staring at all of the different keys. <laughs> You're a masochist. Wow. That's a, that is not the answer I expect. <laughs> it, it, it maybe gets it gets you like a deeper understanding, um, so that you can actually play with the tags um, and maybe make some typos and really break things. But the way to really get that comprehensive understanding is to break it and then have to go fix it again. I remember my first stabs at production setups of monkey on a large scale were all command line. And I remember having a very tenuous understanding of all the links and, and, and there were a few goofs because of that. But when I found monkey admin, the app and then Greg's monkey web admin, I found that helped the graph just to having a GUI, just to show the relationship. Okay. The catalogs, the manifests, uh, some, some, sometimes you need something to paint that picture of, what is the relationship between these items or what is the most important thing and what, what points to what um, I, d I still use monkey admin cause I find that it helps, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like maybe more than average. I'm, uh, uh, I'm pretty comfortable in the command line. Um, I would say, yeah, more than average. Uh, and I, I, I have come from a world where I'm sort of like setting up a lot of uh, Linux architecture from scratch. And that's when a lot of those tools, you don't even have a GUI equivalent. Yeah, I remember a million years ago, my boss, when I complained there was no Emacs on a Solaris machine, he's like, well, you learn Vim or VI, or you learn to install Emacs. I'm like, hmm, which one's harder? <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> Well, are there better tools? Am I, uh, am I bashing my head against the wall with uh, just staring at plist directly? Uh, you recommend Monkey Admin in particular? I mean, Monkey, Monkey Admin is a nice GUI app to help set up the relationships. I mean, I've gotten used to using the command line Monkey Import because I find it has a nice little templating system to, oh, this is, you're manually importing a new version of this thing that's already been there, and that helps... Um, if you're not, if you don't have an auto package recipe for a particular item, that helps. Um, and Monkey Web Admin, which is a project that Greg built, I found that one is just as nice. It's like a web version and just helps sets up the relationships. And I find that a little bit easier just to quickly go. Okay, these items over here, and I mean, I mean, I like the command line too. It just depends on how much time you have in a day and what you're running into. <laughs> like. You, you don't want to hand carve plists on, on a regular basis, man. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, having started with HTML and then there was XML, I mean, I respect a well-crafted uh, logical piece of data, <laughs> but I, I started to hate them. And then I realized that YAML and uh, Python were more hateable because of the whole spaces thing. Ugh, you know, learn to love lint, linters. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Seth, are, are you, I guess, what school of thought are you? Are you uh, in the uh, 
the realm of using uh, serial numbers to organize manifests and then having sub-manifests, or are you, you just throwing people into to group manifests? Yeah, uh, that is a great question. So my the whole deployment is relatively simple. I mean, the only thing I'm even really using for the testing catalog is um, just a handful of serial numbers. It seems like serial numbers is the way to go. And just to have most people get a few managed installs, like all pretty much all the optional installs that you could sort of want at your whole company, even if a bunch of those won't be relevant to different people. Um, right. All right, like different departments will want different specialized apps, but they can do all that with the optional installs. And then, yeah, just a handful of uh, serial number manifests is, has really been the way that I've been able to wrap my head around it because I can get, I mean, I just did this with a new test M1 MacBook Air, just add the serial number, put it in the testing environment and play with uh, what apps, what it looks like when apps get installed onto there. So definitely in the uh, serial numbers. And I should say, I got good advice. I wish I could remember who it was in the Slack channel uh, to go that route. Because if you start to do different groups, you can quickly paint yourself into a corner uh, without realizing it. It's probably Alan. Alan Sue. Mm -hmm. he's pretty... Uh into that uh we interviewed him many podcasts ago he's very helpful so many helpful people in the community and i think monkey was definitely one of my inspirations for mac devops in the beginning because one of my colleagues had done something with monkey and puppet and i just thought what he built with those two things was so cool and every time i think of mac devops i think let's program all these sessions about things about monkey that I don't know, which could be like many days of sessions because as much as you get into Monkey, there's so many cool things that people are doing with it. There's so many built-in things. I mean, I'm afraid to admit all the things I don't know about Monkey, there's so much still that I'm not using. I mean, even the just the basics of Monkey are so genius. Oh, somebody may have installed an app that you, wasn't in your catalog. Oh, you can just put it in Monkey and then it'll update, you know, if even if they didn't get it from you or, you know, you can add a, an app to Monkey that you don't want because you want it to be in your uninstalls. Um, you know, the simple little things and just having a nice little big fat optional catalog, you know, and people can shop around for your pre-vetted apps and not Google for the first thing that they see, click download and try and install it themselves. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I can say even the sort of lesser known features, um, I, I've just ran into this situation where, I have been trying uh, to make sure that um, it, it's it's more than bootstrapping uh, because I scripted a sort of package to package to make sure that uh, once the repo was configured, I would have um, have the managed software center actually run and update and actually grab the managed installs right on a for a zero touch deployment. Um, and so I'd been working on making sure that Chrome and Slack just always install. Um, and uh, Slack has made a very peculiar choice to not have any universal binaries coming up. So I was like scratching my head and wondering, how am I going to deal with this? Is this like really going to be this obnoxious? Do I have to start naming packages differently? And saw that Monkey has this built-in feature of actually tagging different packages for supported architectures that actually goes way back before now. So now for all the Apple Silicon stuff, you can tag a package, only install this if the architecture is Apple Silicon or the uh, old Intel x86-64, or <laughs> I mean, even older uh, before they had those core two duos, the, um, uh, the x86. And, and I think, I guess Monkey is this old, <laughs> way, way before I was using it. They were doing uh, this with a power, power PC. Yeah, the transition yeah. back from then. So uh, the fact that that's still built in was like a huge relief. It's like the perfect thing that I needed at that perfect moment. And I don't know how many times that question came up, three or four different times from five or six different people. And uh, yeah, <laughs> sometimes... 
Slack is so helpful. And sometimes it's just like people are like, scroll up, scroll up, you know, or search the wiki. <laughs> or I think I was trying to agree with Greg about something and he was like, no, you're saying it wrong. And I'm like, we're saying the same thing. No, you're saying it wrong. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, yeah. But, you know, it is a genius hidden feature, supported architectures. <laughs> I find one of the things that uh, makes that channel so helpful and supportive, um, and I found that the, it's actually a key ingredient for different IRC channels, for different um, other open source projects I've been paying attention to, is actually having users who really pay attention to that XY problem um, and being aware of it and even having people know to sort of call out people for the XY problem um, and knowing how to work around it. The XY problem? Is that the male problem or chromosomes? <laughs> so, so the XY problem... Um, you could probably Google it and find the exact description of it, but it's it's essentially like when users pop into a IRC chat or a Slack channel and they ask about how to do something, but they're asking uh, about their proposed their proposed solution as they understand it and instead of the actual problem they're trying to solve. So they might ask how to do some weird esoteric thing that doesn't actually solve their problem but they're presenting this to a community with a wealth of knowledge. And if people can tell that someone's asking about a weird, wrong, pointless solution that won't accomplish what they're doing and instead say like, what are you trying to do? Oh, don't just try this thing you think it is. Instead, here's what you're trying to do. We understand it. Here's the actual totally different solution that you couldn't have thought of because you didn't know. It seems like as IT people, we're used to asking users, clients, other people, what are you trying to actually do? What are you trying, what problem are you trying to solve? But when we think we have a proposed solution to the problems that we heard, we are not used to being asked, what are you actually trying to do? Exactly. I was going to say that this, that was the nicest call out of Matt that I've heard from somebody. What? Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, now we all get fixated on what, you know, our assumption of the analysis of the problem and our proposed solution. So it's great to have the Mac and Slack and the Monkey Channel and others to be our sanity checkers. Go, what are you trying to do, Seth? Exactly. And Seth, I think you're trying to do a lot of things. You've been posting a lot about Resolve and AWS. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your CentOS and lots of other fun that you're, you're playing. What problem are you trying to solve, Seth? Yeah, so this was another thing. Um, I mean, part of this was even just curiosity. Um, so um, if you uh, have paid attention to uh, kind of the history of Resolve, uh, it's, it's been kind of like a pretty interesting rise in the post-production world. Um, there's actually a great talk that uh, this guy Rami Katrib gave to uh, Lackpug Group. If you go find it, it's it's like the history of Resolve. Um, but Resolve actually used to be on like big iron systems that used to only run on Red Hat or CentOS. And so um, as it's gotten more and more popular, they have sort of still developed for that but the knowledge there has been very esoteric. Um, and I think if you're trying to deploy Resolve on Linux, um, they don't really want to have to deal with a lot of the questions that newbies would be asking if they didn't already know. Um, but what's always been compelling to me about those Linux builds is those are the ones that they always said were the most powerful. Uh, those are the ones where they said, especially when it mattered in the older days and GPUs were all less powerful individually, there was no real limit. You could just throw eight GPUs into a chassis and uh, it, you would actually get uh, maybe not linear gains, but you would still get a definite uh, performance gains from each GPU you added. There were other hard limits on Mac and Windows. So I was always kind of interested in the Linux build itself um, just to play with. And so in 2013, or I should say a few years after 2013, when I realized that the Mac Pro 6.1 <laughs> was uh, 
really not getting the love from Apple that it needed and it was time to switch. Uh, I I (laughs) had waited as long as I could. And so when I was going to switch away from the Mac Pro 6.1, I knew that I was going to try to make sure that we were deploying Resolve on Linux for sure. Uh, I didn't really want to deal with Windows, but except where I needed it. Um, And so I just learned sort of deeply what all the dependencies are, uh, were to make sure that Resolve runs right. Installing the NVIDIA drivers is no, is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) And- um, I've seen your tweets. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Things, uh, you can definitely get really into the weeds fast, but um, there's always been a kind of tension between NVIDIA because they're shipping these proprietary drivers uh, when I'm sure many in the Linux kernel development community would prefer that they just contribute upstream, but they still don't. And uh, if you want to run NVIDIA applications on Linux, you are on your own to install those drivers. So, so having deployed that and played with that a bunch and sort of getting that uh, working, that knowledge all transfers to AWS. So we, right, when the pandemic hit, we had started transferring a ton of files via S3. And what I realized was with these EC2 instances, um, some of them have a ton of Tesla GPUs in them. Um, and right, Linux is for the cloud. So uh, really with all that data already in an S3 bucket that was ready, just going to be uploaded and then uh, just sitting there to be downloaded for someone else, figured we could spin up a CentOS instance, install Resolve on it and uh, just render dailies right from it and then pop it back into an S3 bucket and sort of have this, I should say mostly cloud workflow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fun because the, the most powerful GPU instances in AWS, uh, I mean, I think if you were to buy all that hardware retail, you're looking at something that's a $100,000 machine, but instead you can just rent it for an hour at, 30 bucks or something which is too too fun to pass up (laughs) (laughs) i think a lot of times we run into these situations because we're excited to solve problems with new tech and new new ways we find problems that we can use this new technique with i mean what was the problem that you were trying to solve seth i mean non 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 sarcastically you didn't have the hardware the macs were not fast enough maybe you didn't have like linux super machines everywhere um you said you're trying to upload video footage so just going back a little bit you're in some kind of media production i don't think we properly introduced you yeah are you in post <laughs> or you know like your your clients your users your colleagues are shooting a lot of footage and then uploading it. So what were you trying to solve with resolve in the cloud? Yeah. So, so we, uh, so yeah, so I I am (laughs) uh, supporting uh, a big uh, video production company and creative agency. Um, And we, um, yes, we're shooting a ton of footage, but we kind of stick to a traditional film workflow. Uh, which involves uh, having a lot of external sounds. We shoot uh, in high quality formats uh, called raw or log formats. Um, And then we will process dailies and uh, go through the process of not just organizing, uh, syncing the sound uh, to the video clips themselves, but the raw and log formats, uh, the color actually looks kind of wonky. Um, and you wouldn't actually want to uh, do video editing with it looking like that. So we actually have to color correct that footage at the same time. So um, this pre-pandemic, when we were doing the on-premises workflow, we would just get drives of this stuff, uh, prep this and render it on-premises. And what we spit out are... Um, it's so-called like offline footage. Um, this this comes from, I guess it's the old tape world of kind of having online and offline workflows. Um, 
the offline footage is kind of low data rate. It is much easier for particular editing machines to churn through, uh, to have the CPUs. So it makes editing with that kind of footage much easier. It makes, uh, say, the different editing software much more responsive. And so you don't have to deal with all the overhead of all of the highest quality media that's just going to be thrown away. So we were shipping all of this offline material to different editors across the country. Um, and really what this means is the thing that they're building, their actual technical uh, piece of work product that they hand back off is just say a project file out of say Premiere. And what this means is we have other assistant editors who can then conform the recipe for a particular video edit back to the original full quality media where it can get finished with color and sound. So um, all that work, that organizational work, we tend to do in DaVinci Resolve and the dailies uh, are organized just so, so that we kind of keep track of the whole process and can get back to that original quality media after it's all actually been edited and laid out. And who's um, doing the uploading? Is this procedure set up so that everyone who shoots uploads themselves and you've created the infrastructure or do you, do you have to upload it yourself? Or Yep, so um, I the the AWS S3 tool itself um, is a little, uh, could be a little intimidating, um, but I made it a little bit easier and have trained a select few users to actually know how to uh, use it. Uh, or I should say, I scripted it to make it a bit easier, like very easy, like, hey, drag this folder into terminal and hit next. Um, so that, you know, like name the folder on Amazon. So uh, the, the few technically minded people know how to move that data back and forth. But again, yeah, like I'm old school and relying on the command line. Uh, they just, yeah, they upload it and ship it around. This, this means that these assistants don't have to have storage and CPUs at their house and they can just receive a drive and then ship it, upload it, and then it spins up. Do you have a dedicated instance or is it actually spin up on demand, spins up some CentOS with Resolve and then processes it? So typically the way we've been doing it, just because, uh, so when the pandemic happened, we just kind of extended the on-premises infrastructure that we had. Um, so we had uh, some free NAS boxes that were just our storage. Uh, for the workstations to connect when everyone was in person. Um, now, uh, we'll still actually download from S3 to those storage servers. And uh, we'll still have uh, assistant editors work on, uh, work on the footage from that server, but extended. So... Um, Right now we're using AnyDesk. Uh, we've been playing with HP Z Central Remote Boost. And they can sort of like make all those decisions to sync color correct and then render out the proxies, that offline media. But if they have that recipe and the online footage is still in the cloud, then uh, it's, it's similar to uploading a Resolve project file and we can just um, use that recipe and work on it directly in the cloud. So it's kind of both. It's almost, um, it's almost like a hybrid. So you can actually use Resolve in the cloud, like interactively or not just to make proxies? There, uh, it is difficult to use it directly in the cloud in the way that we're doing it. And the particular Amazon recommended VNC client, Tiger VNC, it actually doesn't have any sound. So it's kind of like we're, we're working on it with the on-premises workstations and creating that project file and then sending that project file into a cloud instance where we don't have to really look at it again and just queue it up to render. Nice. 
So it's the best. So it's the best of both worlds. We can have the responsiveness, the sound, the color, and look at it on the on-premises workstations, extended uh, or in person, and then um, send that into the cloud and really use the EC2 instance. Uh, you can see Resolve and you can see the GUI, but you wouldn't want to start, especially with the latency. You wouldn't want to try to sync audio in it <laughs> when it's silent. You can't hear anything. So. Overall, you've been pretty happy with your cloud infrastructure experiments? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting, Blackmagic Design, the developers of Resolve, they don't really develop for this kind of thing. Um, but a lot of these experiments are just, you wonder if something is possible and if something can work on one system, you just kind of wonder if it can work on another. And it turns out that it does work in the cloud and in pretty specific, uh, there are very specific conditions where it actually makes sense to do it. So yeah, every once in a while, I would say every few months we spin it up and say like, we have a ton of footage here in this city. We need to get this ready for someone else in this other city. We have to do this as fast as possible. And it makes sense. It's nice to have it ready to go. This year has definitely challenged all of our uh, workflows um, so are you finding that it saves you time? How's the cost? Yeah, I'd say the cost is, um, uh, that cost is like a little bit more. Uh, it's when you want to spend, uh, it, it, the cloud is, we haven't gotten to a point. I don't think where, uh, the cloud is less expensive than on-premises workflows. So, uh, but sometimes it's just worth it for convenience to sort of have it all managed by someone else, for sure. I, at some point, I mean, I think it's going that way. Uh, you know, who would have thought that Netflix would be streaming only, even just, say, 15 years ago? I mean, people were still getting discs mailed, and you could sort of tell that it was going to get cheap enough to not do that we're not there yet, I don't think. Well, this year's been terrible for so many reasons, but it's definitely helped us find new solutions. It's definitely challenged us. I mean, I know with my users, with Final Cut, we're using PostLab, which is GitLab. So they're using Git with Final Cut, and it's made, <laughs> it made it completely possible to be a remote editorial workforce, which is pretty genius when you think of it. And uh, I know I've been saying this for six years, but my days of on-premise storage fixing may be numbered, but uh, <laughs> it's a mix of both now, you know, on-premise and clouds. And it's good to know uh, what's available and what's possible. And I've definitely been inspired by your adventures, Seth. Thank you. Yeah. The, the post-lap guys are doing some really interesting stuff. And uh, the next thing uh, that looks very interesting is all the stuff that LucidLink is doing. Um, mm -hmm. and together with that, that might be, that might be the actual experience where you're not actually managing any on-premise storage server anymore. That, that could be the game changer. It seems like this might be right where this takes off and, uh, yeah. you could have companies that are starting that really don't need any on-premises infrastructure anymore like this. Late August with Final Cut 10.4.9, they finally made a real usable proxy workflow. And with that, with PostLab and PostLab Drive, which is LucidLink, it's, we can make tiny proxies, ship them very quickly and work locally, but use the cloud to sync and stay in contact as a team. I mean, we still have to move some drives and I'm still trying to make it better, but yeah, being able to make small proxies and move those and have the team stay together, that's, that's the goal. Absolutely. Seth, are you finding uh, your users being on, on home internet connections uh, running into data caps there or with uploads and things like that as well? Um, yes. <laughs> some, <laughs> some of them. Um, so, yeah, for, for some of those users, they are, I, I should not name names, uh, but some, some of the ISPs are particularly bad with throttling and they, uh, we just have to ship drives back and forth with them. Yeah, there's, there's just kind of no way around it. They, uh, yes, very obnoxious. We, I was all proud of this amazing, elaborate <laughs> workflow where I'm shipping all this data from 
different cities, different coasts. And then it all comes down to the ISP just deciding, nope, this is too much. Yeah, I've run into that with a few clients that, that they bought the unlimited, you know, data. There's no data caps, but but they start throttling. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Comcast. I'll say it. <clears throat> yeah. What's the uh, next big, big challenge for Seth? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think um, it's one of these things I'm, I'm always trying to figure out, uh, especially working this close to sort of the developer tools in the cloud. Um, it's not really for end users. And so I'm trying to think of different ways to make this more accessible. There's lots of great third-party apps that have good GUIs and they sort of build everything on top of Amazon uh, VPCs or um, even just like integrated with an S3 bucket. But the, uh, the thing I'm trying to think, uh, the thing that really will be scalable for business in a better way is making all these tools much more accessible. So I'm trying to put my head down and figure out what's the, the Joe Schmo non-technical user, would they be able to just pop a drive in and upload five terabytes? So that's, that's the next challenge to try to figure out how do we make this easier and more accessible for everyone? Yeah. The software that bridges between the physical and the virtual or the cloud drives, the S3 buckets and the actual card captures. I've been trying to use Hedge, which is the same company that makes PostLab, but they're different origin stories for those software. So trying to use Hedge to push the PostLab drive, which is Lucid, but that's not always, you know, they're not, they're not optimized quite yet. So you're trying to verify your card captures, your media files, and dump them straight into a cache that is going online. And then, yeah, need a, need a workflow that bridges all that so that people don't even question what is a real drive and what is a virtual drive. And I think they're starting to have infrastructure. I think it's definitely in the enterprise, it's, it's happening for a while where there's virtual drives and, and even Amazon with their outposts. You know, basically you can have Amazon infrastructure in your data center, but I think people that have on-site storage with cash, but also with cloud drive. So it's just moving stuff in the cloud, moving stuff back and forth. I mean, I'm dealing with, uh, you know, media archives and I, I need something that's like always moving. <laughs> when my editors want it, I want it to be there already. And when they don't want it, I want it to be moved off, you know, but it has to be accessible and you have to trust it. <laughs> I mean, I've been playing with P5 archive and I know it's in there um, you know, roadmaps for the future to make this more seamless. But right now it's a bit of mental shifting and physical bit pushing of trying to get these buckets. Okay, this is in the cloud. This is on tape. This is on a drive. This is on nearline archive. Where's all my data? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the editors want it right now. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think bandwidth will definitely continue to increase. I mean, who would have thought, I can remember when broadband was a big deal. And uh, just with how much video is getting streamed now on the internet is like really, really incredible that you can tell it's going that way. And when we check back in like 10 years, we're going to be saying, remember when we couldn't even just edit directly off of the, our 10 gig line that everyone has? I, I don't know if it'll, everyone will have 10 gigabit <laughs> internet in 10 years, but um, it'll be more and more. Seems like the magic sauce is in the codex. I mean, H.264 is still around, and it's kind of like MP3s, which is, <laughs> you know, like, that, that's, a, that's even older standard, and that's still around. But, I mean, what we can do with, with like, a, an MPEG, MPEG-4 proxy and make it 10% or 50%, I mean, your editors can be working in 4K, but it can be a much smaller version of 4K, and that's, that's astounding. I and mean, even with H.265, you can have much less bandwidth being used. I mean, and I'm sure Netflix's genius is in the codex they're using to stream all of their streaming, you know, so that doesn't get dropped and interrupted and other streaming services aren't quite as successful, you know, so there's some secret sauce. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's another really interesting initiative, the AV1 codec, uh, which is something to watch out for. Um, actually, there's another generation. There's kind of like, 
the uh, proprietary patent pool of uh, H.264 and HEVC, and their next one is VVC, um, which is still a few years from really um, having any serious implementations. But uh, AV1 is going to take off, and all of the tech giants uh, really want to have this alternative codec that doesn't have to pay any licensing fees uh, to that patent pool. So, yeah, the 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 codec wars they they are continuing. It, it it's interesting because e- even though those tech giants are behind AV one, um, a lot of the times they'll still implement the HEVC, and I'm sure we'll see VVC implementations as well. But yeah, that's those those efficiency gains are really also pretty incredible. I think there's hours of a historical podcast that we need to do sometime. I remember reading about Nikola Tesla and his battles with Thomas Edison about whether AC or DC was going to win out. And he had, and you know, Nikola Tesla had to give up his patents just to make sure that they would win and work. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) Well, the irony there is that we've gone from AC back to DC and everything's run off of five volt micro USB connectors. (laughs) And USB-C connectors, so I'm, I don't know. I don't know that yeah. that's a good comparison, man. <laughs> people, I, I just think it's a great... Yeah. People still say that uh, right, like Betamax was the uh, superior product, and yet VHS took off. Like the, the technically better product is not the thing. A lot of times these are just sort of historical accidents. It's more to your point of of the the licensing fees on Codex. Sony wanted money for beta, and and VHS didn't require that, and that's why that's why one took off and the other didn't, because greed was involved. I think the story repeats itself everywhere. I mean, nobody's heard of this Robertson screw, which is a square head, which is the Canadian one, and they wanted licensing, and Ford was like, "No, we're not paying." So there you go. Now the world is cursed with Phillips. <laughs> you know? And, and I just. We are. I read today about like Volvo developed a three point safety harness, like the seatbelt. And they decided instead of licensing, it just said everybody should use this because it'll save lives. And so, yeah, maybe Betamax won't save any lives, but we could have seen better TV. I don't know. Thank you, Seth. Um, it's been very informative and we look forward to your adventures. We want to learn with you. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. Yeah, I uh, will keep asking questions in a uh, very uh, fearless way. <laughs> and hopefully everyone will yes. learn with me. We can find you on the Mac admins in the uh, the monkey channel, but uh, how else might we reach you on the internet? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, so just like my name is spelled, uh, it's Seth Golden. That's G-O-L-D-I-N. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. My DMs are open for now. flame on Um, thank you Seth Uh, you are very courageous awesome and entertaining Um, excellent if you want to sponsor the Mac DevOps podcast uh, just give us a shout at hello at mdoyvr.com we'll be accepting sponsorships for the podcast and for the next year's conference thank you to our Mac DevOps YVR 2020 sponsors our sponsors for Mac DevOps, YVR, The Conference 2020. Mac Stadium, our platinum sponsor, thank you so much for helping us out. Sauce Labs, our gold sponsor. Simple MDM, our silver sponsor. And Adigy, our bronze sponsor, as well as Elastic, our community sponsor. Thank you so much. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Mac DevOps podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to our co-hosts, Today's episode was edited by J.D. Strong. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. Now we're like boomers on Zoom. (laughs) 